Last week we began looking at Romans 9, the beginning of a lengthy discussion centered around the question of Jewish unbelief as the church experienced that in the first century. Now when I say Jewish unbelief, I mean the Jews as a people. Obviously, Jesus Christ is not the accepted Messiah of a majority of his own people. Though individually, Jews have always been part of the church in every age and century. But the question of Jewish rejection of Christ, of Jesus as the Christ, is a very important one in the New Testament because Israel, well, they're God's chosen people. And if the chosen people reject God's chosen Messiah, what does that say about God's choice? It would seem that by missing Christ, the Jews are not going to receive what was promised them over and over again in the Old Testament. And if that is so, then how valid are the promises of God? Has he failed? That is the issue that's specifically being addressed in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And that is why Paul states so clearly in verse 6 of chapter 9, but it, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Because that was the accusation, that it had failed. And he's saying it's not as though it had failed. God has not failed Israel. Events have not altered his promises. None of God's promises to Abraham or anyone else will be left unfulfilled when all is said and done. And you must understand this because God has made promises to the church as well. And you must know that he will keep them. Christians are chosen by God to be saved eternally. That's really what the definition of a Christian is. That's what Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30 tell us so clearly. When we were back there, we went through that in some detail. Can that choice of God to save Christians eternally fail? No, it can't. Well, then what about the Jews? See, that's what somebody would say. And that is the question we're exploring. It took Paul three whole chapters, so it's going to take us several weeks at least to do that, to look at that. He begins in verse 6 with an attention-getting statement. He says, It is not as though God's word has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That is, not every physical descendant of Israel is included in the redemptive promise. Now, actually, this should seem sort of obvious. Clearly, you might be a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Israel and have no faith and have no morals and have no compassion and be a completely lawless human being. I mean, it could be. And you would not expect salvation, would you, if you were such a person? Well, in Paul's day, Judaism put a lot of weight in mere physical descent. In fact, one well-known rabbinical writing from the early days, the early centuries, puts it this way, quote, all Israelites have a share in the world to come. Paul says, not so. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Why would the rabbis claim that all Israelites have a share in the world to come? Because they are the chosen people. God chose them, so they must all benefit. Abraham's blood flows in their veins. And that in itself has saving efficacy. In fact, if you remember John the Baptist, when he was early on preaching, he says, he says don't think that you'll be saved because you're children of Abraham. He says, God can raise up from stones children to Abraham. He says, that's not what's going to get you right with him. But that's what was commonly believed. So now Paul thoroughly agrees that the Jews are chosen as a people for divine blessing, and that's why he carefully lists the blessings of being Jewish in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9. Let's review those once more time. 
we looked at that last week, but he says, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. But that does not mean that every physical descendant of Abraham is saved and bound for heaven. It doesn't mean that. And Paul isn't just saying it ain't so. He will prove it from the scriptures of his own people, from the Old Testament. So now, you have to pay close attention. Because Paul is going to discuss election. Not democratic elections, not who's going to be the governor or whatever. But God's election, his choosing. And he's going to demonstrate that God's election does not include every descendant of Abraham. So now remember, the big question is, how can the chosen people reject Christ? What's going on with that? And does that mean that God's promises have failed? That's the big question. Well, here's his first point. Not every Jew is a true Jew, that is, chosen by God. Here's the proof, verse 7. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But, and now he quotes from Genesis, through Isaac your descendants will be named. This is real simple, and every Jew, of course, would know this. God chose Isaac to be the chosen one through whom the covenant promises were continued and confirmed. Did Abraham have any other children? Well, yes. In fact, he had a son that was born before Isaac, Ishmael, by Hagar. Ishmael was not the one. Ishmaelites do not possess, as a people, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. Ishmael's children are not the fathers, and it is not from Ishmael from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. They don't have all of that. But Isaac's descendants do have all of that. Real simple point. Was Ishmael a child of Abraham? Yes. But he wasn't chosen. Verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise as regards, as regarded as descendants, are regarded as descendants. Some people are not children of God. They are children of the flesh. Now, this might refer to Ishmael since his birth by Sarah is this idea of flesh. He was born by Sarah's maid. Abraham had a wife, Sarah. She couldn't conceive. She was very elderly. They were both very elderly. So they came up with the idea of using her maid, which was totally legitimate in the ancient world, this was a common custom, to use her maid and bring her on as a concubine in the family, a secondary wife, and that she would bear the children for the, for the husband when she could not bear. And so she's an Egyptian, Hagar. She seems to have um, been an attempt by Abraham and Sarah at Sarah's suggestion to fulfill God's promise by human means. God made a promise, we're going to have children. Well, it isn't happening, so we're going to make it happen. Through a human method, that would be a child of the flesh in that sense. A fleshly decision was made, not a faithful, trusting decision. So a human choice, a human will, human effort, and not the one. Not the one. Now, Ishmael was blessed by God, but not in that covenantal, redemptive, historical way. God promises and God fulfills. Verse 9, For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. The impossible, God would make a reality because he promised. They should have trusted that, but they didn't. 
Well, a Jew might argue, well, you know, that's a, that's a weird case. I mean, Ishmael, that's like different. I mean, you're right, he was not the son intended. He is a child of Abraham. He wasn't chosen. But that's because Hagar was an Egyptian and Sarah received the promise. So in this unique case, Ishmael, a son of Abraham, is not chosen. But Isaac is chosen and everyone through Isaac is chosen. And Paul would say, no. What about Isaac's sons? And that's verse 10. Not only this, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Paul says, let's consider the case of Isaac. Jacob and Esau, his children, twins, born from the same mother, in the womb at the same time. Esau, the older, is rejected. And Jacob, the younger, is chosen. Why make the choice? Verse 11, it says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, then verse 12, It was said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Who makes the choice? God makes the choice. Verse 12 quotes a portion of the words that were given to Rebekah by God himself. Verse 13 quotes Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 1, the, very, the second verse of chapter 1. A startling passage condemning Esau's descendants to doom forever as a people because of sin, but promising to sinful Israel restoration and blessing, even though its sins are just as grievous as well. Why one and not the other? God's choice. God's free choice. God's sovereign choice. Now this just raises the hackles on people. Probably there's some hackles being raised, even in this room as we speak. Those who fear God's election and, and can't handle it as an idea immediately run to this idea of foreknowledge, which we talked about about a month, about a month ago. Well, God foresaw that Jacob would be a better man than Esau, and he chose him because of that. No, that is not right. Let's back up. We sort of skipped through verse 11 a little quickly. Verse 11 is the key to what Paul wants to say about God's election and his choosing. Verse 11 gives the basis for the words spoken to Rebekah in verse 12. And why the choice had ramifications years later, even centuries later, in God's dealing with these two nations, Israel and Edom, the, the descendants of Esau and Malachi. The basis is not foreknowledge. Verse 11, Though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. He did not foresee who was going to be good and who was going to be bad. It's not of works. They hadn't done anything. They're just little babies, pre-borns, and he's already choosing. So Paul very carefully crafts this sentence in verse 11 to affirm God's freedom in election. That's a really important thing to understand. That freedom is the central idea in his argument. He is not bound by looking ahead and seeing who's going to do what, because then the choice is theirs. 
The choice is his. The electing purposes of God are his own. If you bring the wrong view of foreknowledge into this concept of election that God foresees and then chooses based on what he sees, meaning, um, then you have bound God. You've tied him up to the choices of human beings. He is bound by human will and human effort and human works. And the whole point that Paul is making is that God is free in his choosing. He is sovereign and he is God. And this is really important and we'll get to it in a minute why it's absolutely necessary that he do the choosing. And why foreknowledge in the sense that means he's looking ahead and seeing what people are going to do and then he chooses can't be true. It can't be true theologically. I'll show you that in a few minutes. The basis of God's choice, verse 11 says, is God's purpose. And his purpose directs his choice and his choice determines whom he calls. That's how it works. Okay, now, several weeks ago we mentioned two theological labels. Essentially, if you believe that the ultimate choice of who is saved is God's, and that word ultimate is really important because everyone agrees theologically that human choice is involved. The issue is why humans choose God or not. See, we all know that you have to choose to follow. Everybody knows that. But why do you choose to follow or not? That is the central issue here. If the ultimate choice is God, then you get labeled a Calvinist. Whether you're a Calvinist or not, that's what you get labeled. That's the label. We're just using labels right now, okay? If you believe that ultimately the choice is God's about who accepts or rejects, you're a Calvinist. If you believe the ultimate choice is man's, you're what's called an Arminian. Calvin and Arminius being two different theologians, okay? Two mighty theologians who have wrestled throughout church history with each other long after they're dead over this issue. As you might guess, Arminians don't care much for Romans chapter 9. <laughs> One might ask, um, how can there be any Arminians left after reading Romans chapter 9? Well, here's what they would say. This isn't even about salvation, this whole chapter. It's not even talking about that. Romans 9 is about covenant blessings to groups of people in this world. It's about national standing. It's not about individual salvation at all. Jacob and Esau represent Israel as a people and Edom as a people. And whether or not they are blessed, salvation is a foreign idea being brought into Romans 9 by Calvinists. That's what an Arminian would say. The problem with saying that is that it actually takes this whole chapter and the next chapter and the chapter after that and renders them meaningless. That's what's wrong with the Arminian view of Romans 9. It makes it nonsensical. Let me try to explain to you why. It, it, it rips it out of its context, and the context is all about individual salvation. Let's back up and think about what is Paul talking about. Why is Paul, in verse 2, overcome with great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart? And why does he say, in verse 3, I could wish myself accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen, his fellow Jews? Why? Because they're missing out on the earthly national blessings? Is that, where, is that the passion of his heart? That they've, oh gosh, they've missed out on these earthly national blessings and they're not acting like the chosen people anymore. No, it's because they are lost to God individually. A mass of individuals. Yes, corporately as a people, but also as a bunch of individuals. He's grieving the fact that they are accursed because so many individuals are without a savior. 
And his point of argument, remember, is whether or not all this personal, individual unbelief means that God's promise has failed, that his word has failed, verse 6. And verse 6 is highly individual when Paul says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. He's specifically removing it from the idea of corporate guilt or blessing and saying there are individuals who are true Israel and there are individuals who are not true Israel. That's the whole point. And that leads to his discussion of the sovereign free election of God. Then there is what follows our passage here today, verses 25 and 26, which talk about Gentiles who are saved, a group of individuals finding eternal salvation. And then look at verse 30 of chapter 9. He says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Is he talking about individuals? Yeah. Individuals have faith, right? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, he says. Is he talking about individuals or as a people? Well, he's definitely talking about individuals. Now, he's talking about a bunch of individuals and sort of a big group of them, but he's still talking about individual choices to pursue righteousness based on works and not faith. Whereas these other people, these Gentiles that he's talking about, are pursuing righteousness based on faith, which is God's commanded way. Then in chapter 10, verse 1, and remember, these three chapters are all tied together. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for the Jews, is for their salvation. What's he talking about? What is all this talking about? Whether they're saved or not. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now he's talking about a group, but he's talking about them as individuals, as decisions that were made. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Then verses 9 and 10 of chapter 10 describe how one can be saved, and all that carries it all the way through chapter 11. He is talking about not nations, but individuals. You can't speak of a national rejection of Christ without meaning the decisions of many individuals. So the question is, why did so many reject him and only a few accept him? And Paul's answer is, God's purpose freely expressed in his electing choice. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. God made choices among the patriarchs in founding the nation of Israel. Isaac instead of Ishmael. Jacob instead of Esau. Now that the Messiah has come, those who are elect among the Jews have received him and the rest have not. And it serves the purpose of God that it be that way. And he's going to lay out this purpose in the rest of these chapters. So you've got to stick with this because it goes all the way through chapter 11 as he explains this. True Israel are those who are chosen just as it's always been. That's what he's saying. How can you deny that, he would be saying to them. When you know that God chose Isaac and you know that God chose Jacob. It's always been that way. 
And Paul's goal in Romans 9, 6 through 13 is not to prove that God freely elected the nation of Israel. Rather, he is establishing a principle by which he can explain how individual Israelites were accursed and yet God's word had not fallen because they were not chosen. Now, the Arminian position simply doesn't hold up in context. If it doesn't, if it doesn't hold up here, then it's not biblical because it's got to hold up through Romans 9 through 11. Any theological system has to work. And this understanding of election agrees completely with the rest of Scripture and the teaching of Christ himself. And what I want to do with the few minutes we've got left is um, just walk through some other places here real quick. First, we can move ahead. We're going to go into this in detail next week, but Romans chapter 9, verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, God is speaking, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then... Paul says, verse 16, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, verse 16 is really important because of this use of the word will. The NIV uses the word desire. The Greek word is fellow. It means will, to choose. I desire, I choose. Now, Arminians are insistent that man has a free will. And he can accept or reject God by his own choosing. But what does verse 16 say about man's will? It says that it doesn't depend on man's will. Well, what is it? Well, it must be salvation. That's what he's talking about. What else could it mean here? Salvation does not depend on man's will. We find a very similar passage in John's Gospel, the very first chapter. You might want to flip there real quick. Describing the new birth. And again, it uses the word will. Keep that in mind. The word will is really important when you talk about free will versus divine will. Okay. John chapter 1, verse 12. Talking about the coming of Christ to his own people. And in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Who were born, now it's talking about the new birth, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, if you have an NIV, they, the, they only use the word will one time, but the Greek has it twice. Thelematos sarkos, the will of the flesh. Thelematos andros, the will of man. It's not that. We're, we're not born again of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. The point is the children of God are born of God, not human will. While we're in John, let's look at John chapter 6. Jesus is speaking about the salvation of individuals, how a person gains eternal life. And of course, at this point, his ministry is directed entirely at his countrymen, to the Jewish people, the covenant people. So let's look at his words, verse 32 of John 6. We're talking about manna in the wilderness and all the stuff that happened with Moses. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Let's stop right there for a second. Christ himself is the bread of life, right? Partaking of him means Jesus defines it as he who comes to me and he who believes in me. So eating him, if you will, means to come 
to him and, re and believe in him. That's what it means. Those who believe in Christ and come to him have life. That's what he's saying. Now, there's a problem. The people here he's talking to don't believe. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. So who does believe? Who comes to Jesus as the bread of life? Well, he tells us, verse 37, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Jesus defines believers as those given to him by the Father. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. So who's making the decision? Well, it sounds like the Father. But for all who do believe, salvation is secure in Christ. Verse 40, For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Well, the people there aren't very impressed with all of this wonderful knowledge because they don't believe. Jesus is a man they've known for years. Joseph's son. He's not some being descended from heaven as far as they know. So they start grumbling. Verse 41. The Jews therefore were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? They just don't believe him. So how is it that anyone believes him? That's the question. Well, Jesus tells us in very precise terms. Verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, They shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. No one can come. That word can speaks of power or ability or capacity. No one has the power to come to me. What? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that word draws is a very strong word. It's like drags. Now we're beginning to understand really whose will is involved in salvation. Whose ultimate choice, and it is God's, it not only is, it has to be. It has to be God's. This is why. Man has a will. You have a will, I have a will. But on our own, we always choose against him. So if God, if the Arminian position is correct and God just laid the gospel out there and said, anyone who will may come, which is what he does in the Bible, guess what? No one would come. Because no one loves him no one could care less about him. Nobody wants his salvation. We want to do our own thing. That is Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks for God, Paul tells us. And if there's none who seeks for God, then God could invite us all he wants. But guess what? Nobody's going to come to the party. So it's not a matter of man being a robot or not having a will. It's a matter of his being a willful rebel a corrupted will who will not repent and come to Christ unless there's a divine work on the heart that draws him. And every Christian knows this to be true in his heart. 
Even Arminians pray for the salvation of those they care about. Why? What are you asking God to do when you pray for someone to be saved? You're asking for God to supernaturally grace their heart and change them and cause them to repent. Isn't that what you're praying for? Do you pray for chances? Oh Lord, throw the gospel at them a few more times. Or do you pray that God would save them? I mean, I pray for that. Our prayers, our hearts know what the truth is. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Let's look at one last text here. Luke chapter 10. There's more, but we don't have time today. Well, maybe two more today. Now, we're seeing what the Bible says about whose will determines which sinners get saved. And we saw in Romans 9.16, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. John chapter 1, those who believe in his name who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, these are really clear statements. Now, in Luke chapter 10, the disciples have been out, the, the big group of disciples, the 70 disciples, have been out ministering and doing wonderful things, preaching the gospel all over Israel. They come back and they're just jazzed. They're just so excited because demons are subject to their commands. You know, they can cast demons out of people, which would be a really cool thing to do if you could do that. And they're really thrilled about it. And Jesus says to them, don't be happy about that. That's the wrong thing to get excited about, that demons fly away when you command them to leave. In verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So the context here is that he's asking them to rejoice in their salvation, that their names are recorded in heaven. Then watch what he says, verse 21. At that very time, he rejoiced. Here's Jesus excited rejoicing greatly in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it is well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. There's that word will again. Whose will? Who the Son wills to reveal him. Who revealed to babes and hid from the wise? God did that. Whose will decide who comes to know the Father? The Son's will decides that. He chooses. Every single place in the Bible where it teaches whose will determines who gets saved it is always God's will. Anytime that word will, choice, decision, election is made in a teaching setting about whose will is involved in salvation, it is God's will. Now, that is so clear it's actually inescapable. There are appeals made to our will. We do have a will. We're not robots. And God appeals to our will. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's inviting you. He's challenging your will. He's calling to your will to make a decision. And you're responsible to make a decision. The whole point is, apart from His grace and His electing mercy, you would say, no, I don't want it.
Christ does offer invitations to salvation because coming to Christ does involve the human will. But what moves the will to come, to decide for Christ? Ultimately, God does. God's grace, the work of the Holy Spirit. God's call and the Spirit's working regeneration in the heart that makes the call effectual, the new life. Last week, we looked really briefly at Acts 13. And the day Paul's ministry went from a primarily Jewish focus to a Gentile one. And we didn't spend much time looking at the Gentile reaction to this news, but the language in Acts 13 describing the reaction is really fascinating. Acts 13.48, let me just read it to you. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then this is the way Luke describes their salvation. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Why did they believe? Because their will... No, it doesn't say that. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who does the appointing? They were appointed so they believed. Their human wills followed God's choice. The divine appointment of God. So, Paul's argument, his explanation for most Jews rejecting Christ is that they were not elect. Well, immediately... This causes a reaction, I mean objections. Paul has to address two questions or accusations, really, that always follow when you talk about this stuff. That's not fair. God is not fair. Choosing some over others. And the second thing is, well, if that's the way it is, then you can't blame us for doing whatever we want to do because we're just robots. Both of those are raised in Romans chapter 9, and we'll look at them both next week. Next week, we'll address God's fairness and his justice. Um, but before we celebrate the Lord's table together this morning, let me just um, share with you a practical benefit as a Christian for understanding the doctrine of election as it appears in the Bible. I just want to read to you from um, Kenneth John's book. It's, it's, sadly, it's out of print. It's a book called Love Before Time. But this is what he says. The knowledge of the doctrine of unconditional election influences the life of a believer in a very important way. It provides him with an understanding of his nature as man which he will never find in conditional election. As long as he persists in believing that he first chose God, he will never find out who he really is. He will never probe the depths of his being. Only the man who sees himself as saved by the choice of God can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am, with full meaning. And only that man will appreciate to the full the grace of God. The man who sees himself as making the critical move toward God, which God made, which made God respond to him, will always have to give some credit for his redemption to his own will. The man who knows his salvation came not by his own will, but by the will of God, recognizes that his human nature and will were leading him in hostility. Down a Damascus road when grace intervened, he readily admits that no man can come unto me except it were given him of my father. And then he quotes Spurgeon, who was one of the greatest preachers that ever lived in the 1800s, a great Calvinist and a great evangelist. Spurgeon said, I must confess that I never would have been saved if I could have helped it. As long as ever I could, I rebelled and revolted and struggled against God. When he would have me pray, I would not pray. And when he would have me listen to the sound of the ministry, I would not. And when I heard and the tear rolled down my cheek, I wiped it away and defied him to melt my soul. But long before I began with Christ, he began with me. 
Mr. Spurgeon, John says, was forced to this conclusion about his own nature by learning the doctrine of election. Having acknowledged the biblical truth of unconditional election, man is forced to definite conclusions about his own nature. No man can adopt the truth of election and at the same time hold to his own sovereignty or his ability to choose God. He cannot continue to think himself capable of seeking or choosing God when he understands he has to abdicate his pretended throne. He must move elsewhere. When the believer sees God occupying the seat of the sovereign elector, he will then move to the chair of humility. He will see himself as he is. He will recognize that if the only way to be saved is for God to put it into man's heart to come, then indeed his own heart must have been dead, void of spiritual desire with no Godward movement. Then he quotes Romans 3.11. And the only adequate accounting for his birth into the new life is that he is born of God, not the will of the flesh, nor man. Only when the doctrine of election without human conditions is preached will the Christian come to this desirable biblical view of himself. Only then will he bow in humble adoration and confess how great thou art. Only then will he move from the seat of sovereignty to the seat of humility. Only then will he bow into the dust and stay there for the remaining days of his journey. And only then will he bring forth the praise and fruit which comes solely from such humility. This is not a humility put on or forced from man's lips. It is not a facade. It is not a role. Having seen himself as he is, man awakes every morning in the dust and finds his only glory is in his Lord. He has a built-in buffer against pride, which is his knowledge of his own heart. He cannot be fooled. He knows that all these Godward movements of his soul were placed there by God. He cannot thank himself in all honesty without pretense or dramatic speech. He knows that he is what he is by the grace of God. And that is so true. So don't run away from an important biblical truth because it has scary implications. We'll talk about the scary implications. But it's a great reality because the security is in God's election. And let me just say this to wrap it up. If you've come and you want to come and you want Christ and you come to him, you are chosen. So you can't play the game of, well, what if I'm not chosen? I want to be saved. You wouldn't want it if God didn't elect you. That's how it works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for humbling us in the dust by the great truth. It's only logically consistent that if none seeks for you, you have to come and draw us to yourself. And that is the great truth of the Bible. It does humble us. It leaves us with nothing but you, which is exactly where we should be. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.